You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Happy 4th of July weekend. It's so good to be here with you all. Like David said, uh, our church family is in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Psalms. And as you probably know, Psalms is a giant book. It is the second longest book in the Bible, I think second to Jeremiah. And so there are so many different ways you can study Psalms, so many different approaches to this book. Uh, But for our church, like David said, we are approaching Psalms through the lens of prayer. How do we use this book as a resource to deepen and enrich our prayer life? How do we use this book as an invitation to pray and hopefully pray in ways that we've never prayed before? Uh, and we are in, we're in really good company when we do this. Uh, the people of God have been using Psalms as a model for prayer for thousands of years. And one of my favorite things about the book of Psalms is that there is not an emotion that you have ever felt or will ever feel that is not somewhere expressed in the book of Psalms. And that's really a comfort to me personally. Sometimes when we feel really strong emotions, it can feel a bit isolating and we feel like maybe we're the only ones who've ever felt something like this. But regardless of what you feel, I guarantee you that in the book of Psalms, we find prayers of the people of God expressing, on the one hand, happiness, ecstatic joy, thankfulness, and praise. But then on the other hand, um, anything from slight irritation all the way to truly uh, rage (laughs) and anger. Uh, We find anxiety and stress all the way to paralyzing fear. And of course, we find sadness all the way to a grief that really is depression. And so I I love this about the book of Psalms because what it does is it gives us permission and it invites us into a prayer life that is actually honest with God. It's actually real with God. And we're gonna be talking about that this morning, especially because this morning we are going to be studying a Psalm of lament, a Psalm of lament. And I don't know about you, but I do not use the word lament in my everyday vocabulary. In fact, I don't think I've ever used it outside of talking about the Bible. But the word lament uh, simply means a passionate expression of sorrow or grief, a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. And it's interesting to know that over a third of the Psalms in your Bible are laments, expressions of sorrow or grief. That is more than any other type of prayer in your Bible. And I think that that's really significant to pay attention to. So if you have your Bibles uh, or your Bible app, please turn with me to Psalms 42. Psalms 42, and we're going to be talking about what it means for us to use this psalm and others like it as a model for how we can also pray these kinds of prayers of lament in our grief and in our times of suffering. All right, Psalms 42, we're going to read it straight through, and as we do, I would like to ask you guys to follow along if you can, and as we read, I would like to ask for you to pay attention to two 
sings, two key features of this psalm. The first thing I would like you to pay attention to is the emotion. And this psalm will hit you over the head with emotion. I promise you, you cannot miss it. It is uh, a very emotional psalm. Uh, the second thing I want you to pay attention to as we read is imagery. So what images is the psalmist painting with his words? Because we are reading poetry, so there's gonna be a lot of images. All right, so those are the two things. Uh, first, emotion, second, imagery. Psalms 42, let's read. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning wanting to learn more about who you are and how to speak to you, how to pray to you. Um, Lord, I pray that our ears and our hearts would be open this morning to what you want to say through your word, and that we would walk away this morning changed, we would walk away this morning more in love with who you are. Amen. All right, so our plan this morning is really simple. The first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through the psalm and talk a little bit about what it means, what some of the images are trying to communicate to us, and then I'd like to talk with you guys about a few barriers that I think we might have in our lives that might keep us from praying this kind of prayer. And then finally, as we've been doing throughout this series, um, we wanna take time as we transition into worship to pray with and for one another. So that's kind of an outline of, of where we're headed. So if we look in the psalm, the psalm opens in verse 1 and 2 with this really striking and memorable image of a thirsty deer. Uh, and this deer is panting or thirsting after flowing streams of water. And the psalmist compares himself with this deer, only what he thirsts for is God himself. Uh, the word soul is used in this psalm six times. And the English word is a little bit misleading, honestly, because uh, when we hear the word soul, uh, what we often think of is the more Greek concept of soul, which is the immaterial spirit that's within us. 
Uh, but the Hebrew word here, nefesh, actually speaks to something even more than that, but it includes our entire being. So when they use that word soul, it means everything that I am, including my body. And so in other words, what the psalmist is saying here is my whole being thirsts after God. Later on in the psalm, he's going to say that this very prayer is him pouring out his very being to the Lord in prayer. Now, in this image, if the psalmist is comparing himself with a deer, that means that the Lord is being compared with what? With the water. And this is a very, very common metaphor for the Lord throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. To give you some examples, Psalm 63, 1 has a very similar sentiment. The psalmist writes, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. In Jeremiah 2, 13, God calls himself a spring of living water. And of course, Jesus famously in John chapter 7 says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Uh, where Israel is located in the ancient Near East, it's a very dry area of the world, and truly at this time, water was considered more valuable than gold. It was associated with life, it was associated with human flourishing, um, and so it's very fitting that God here is described as this very thing needed to survive, this very thing needed for life. So at the beginning of this uh, prayer, we still don't know exactly what the psalmist is going through, right? He hasn't told us his situation, but we do see that he knows what he needs. He knows that he needs the living God. And so right away in these first two verses, this prayer, the stage is set with this desperation for God and for his presence. Verse 3, the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. Now, this image communicates uh, that the psalmist is in such an emotional state that he is either crying or on the verge of tears all day and all night. I think we've all maybe been there uh, at some point in our lives where the smallest thing, we will start crying. Um, this also might suggest that he is not eating, right? That he's, instead of eating, he's just crying, right? So there's deep, deep emotion that he's communicating here. Also in verse three, if you guys notice, we have other characters that are introduced. People who are around our psalmist and are taunting him. And you guys notice, what is their taunt? What is it that they're uh, kind of calling out to him, speaking out over him? They are saying, where is your God? Now, that taunt, uh, it does not mean that they're questioning God's existence. So at this time in the world, there were no such things as atheists that did not exist. Everyone believed in the gods. Rather, this taunt, where is your God, is the claim that your God is nowhere near you. He has abandoned you. He has forgotten you. He has left you. And so what we're left to believe is that this psalmist has experienced um, something so great, a suffering so great, that the people around him are just assuming that his God has left him, just because of how bad his situation is. 
And uh, you guys might be thinking of the book of Job. It's very similar to Job, right? Job goes through so much suffering that even his friends assume God must either have left you or he must be very angry with you, right? It's this assumption. Now look with me at verse five. This is probably the most important verse of the psalm. It is a refrain, meaning it's repeated. In this case, it's repeated twice, once here and once at the end of the psalm. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now notice that he stopped talking to God in this moment. He's no longer praying to God. He's talking to who? He's talking to himself, to his own soul. And I, I love this so much. He's questioning himself about why he feels the way he does, why he is in so much distress. And then he gives himself a command. Do you guys notice that? He gives himself a command. He tells his own soul to hope in God. It's like he's trying to convince himself, he's trying to stir up hope in his own soul. And I love that because we get a picture of someone who is fighting for hope. And he says in this refrain that at this point, he, he's not praising God, but he hopes one day he might be able to. And so he commands himself to hope. Verse six needs a little bit of an explanation. Uh, I don't know if you guys, when you were reading it, noticed that in verse six, um, the author talks about a lot of like geographical locations. So I'll read it for you. Verse six, he writes, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Um, this verse seems a little bit random at first. Why is he all of a sudden mentioning all these places? And I think it helps to see these locations on a map. Okay, awesome. So on this map I have for you the star at the bottom, that's around where Jerusalem is located. So that would be where the temple is, where God's presence dwelled. And then Mount Hermon, which he mentions, is in the northernmost part of Israel. And it's actually the tallest mountain in Israel. It's over 9,000 feet above sea level. So it is possible that the author is literally writing this psalm from Mount Hermon. But I actually think what he's doing here is it's an image of how far away he feels from the presence of God. Um, Mount Hermon is about as far away from the temple as you could get while still being in Israel. And so I think why he's using this imagery and this geography is to paint a picture of how distant he feels from God, how distant he feels from God's presence. In verse seven, we have another image of water, although this image is very, very different from verse one and two. Uh, rather than talking about flowing, peaceful streams, uh, instead, the psalmist describes the way he feels as if he is at the bottom of a raging waterfall. And the image in my mind that comes to mind is if you have ever been under a waterfall, there's this force above you that is pushing you down deeper into the water. The second image that he used is that of waves and breakers going over his head. 
This is almost an exact quotation uh, from the book of Jonah, actually. So in Jonah, Jonah says this when he is describing what it felt like to be drowning in the ocean. He says, the currents swirled about me, all your waves and your breakers swept over me. It's kind of a terrifying picture. Um, I first moved to Hawaii when I was 13 years old with my family, and uh, we like to tease my dad about this. Um, but we moved here from Rhode Island, and one of the first beaches that my dad took us to when we moved here was Sandy's. So I don't know if you are familiar with Sandy's, but it has this incredibly powerful shore break. So there I was, 13 years old, fresh off the plane. And in my mind, the ocean is the ocean. So I grew up near the ocean. I went swimming. Everything's fine. And going out there and getting absolutely demolished by the shore break and feeling like if you've ever been caught in a shore break, you know it feels like you're in a washing machine. Like you have no control over your body at all. And when you come up for air, it's just another wave is hitting you. And then you come up for air and then another wave is hitting you. Um, and that's the picture this psalmist is using for how he's feeling in his grief. It's complete chaos. He can't catch a breath. He feels like the minute he comes up for air, he's hit with something else. And so really, this is a striking image of grief. Now, verse 8 and 9, uh, these are the last two we're really going to talk about before we move on, are really interesting verses in the Psalms. So in verse 8, seemingly out of nowhere, the psalmist declares God's love for him. Up until this point, it's been a lot of doom and gloom and tears and emotion and depression. And then all of a sudden, there's this declaration of God's love. So let's read verse 8. He writes, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, if you've read much of the Psalms, you know that this is actually really common in a lament. Right in the middle of these prayers of grief and sorrow will be this high moment where the, where the author will declare the goodness of God. But what's interesting about this particular verse is that in the very next verse, verse 9, what does the author say to God in verse 9? He says, why have you forgotten me? And it seems like a contradiction. In one verse, he's saying God loves me day and night. And in the next verse, why have you forgotten me? So which is it? Does the psalmist believe in God's steadfast love or has God forgotten him? And I think what's happening here, and this is my, my personal opinion, I believe that the author knows that God has not forgotten him. I think intellectually he knows that God is good, God is faithful, God is loving. But at the same time, he still feels in this moment like God has forgotten him. And I think that that is so relatable to the human experience to have a clash between what I know is true about God and how I actually feel in that moment. And I think that's what we're seeing here, is what the psalmist knows is intellectually true versus what he feels to be true. Now, the psalm ends in verse 11 with the refrain. 
Let me read it. It's word for word the same as verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then the psalm ends. There's no resolution. There's no happy ending. There's no big declaration of trust or praise. It just ends unresolved. Uh, something I want to point out to you that you might have noticed when we were going through this psalm is that throughout the psalm, there are no requests. Did you guys see this? There are actually no requests of God to come help him or do something for him. Rather, the psalm is dominated by two things, a description of the situation, here's what I'm going through, and then a description of how the psalmist feels. That's the whole prayer. Now, if you're like me, uh, when you pray during a time of grief or hardship, for me, most of my prayers are a very detailed list of what God should do and how he should help me out of this situation. And I want to be clear, I don't think there is anything wrong with that. In fact, in other laments, there are requests of God. But something interesting about the laments is that that is never the focus of any of the prayers. Rather, laments are dominated by, here's what I'm going through, God, and here's how I feel about it. And when I was studying this psalm, I was just struck at how different that is from how I pray. Very rarely will I sit down with the Lord and tell him what's going on and tell him how I feel. And I think there's a few reasons for that. And so uh, the last thing we're going to do this morning is I want to walk us through four beliefs that we might adopt that could be barriers between us actually praying prayers like this beliefs we might have that might keep us from approaching God in the way the psalmist did in Psalm 42. The first, and I, I resonate with this one, uh, I resonate with all of them. The first is the belief that it is not holy or appropriate to pray how I really feel, especially if those feelings are negative emotions. Uh, you might have grown up in a church setting where you felt like you needed to kind of get yourself together before you go to church. You need to kind of get yourself cleaned up before you approach God. And unfortunately, what that does for a lot of us is it puts in our mind this belief that when we pray to God, our prayers must be guarded, that we need to choose our words carefully when we're praying to the Lord. We can't actually come to him as we really are. Uh, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book on Psalms called The Cry of the Soul write, Christians are particularly adept at numbing themselves against painful emotions. After all, we reason, we should be joyful because we know that God is in control. Negative emotions such as fear, anger, or depression are stigmatized as inappropriate because God is love and grants us peace. The psalmist's ruthlessly, the psalmist's ruthless honesty compels us to look beyond the surface of our tumult, deeper into our soul where we expose our battle with God. You see, the problem with this belief is the psalms. 
And that's why I love the book of Psalms, is it gives us permission to approach God honestly with how we really feel. I'm going to show you guys some examples from other Psalms uh, that express emotions that we might think are unfit to pray, and yet they are in our Bibles. The first is fear. This is from Psalms 55.4. Fear pounds in my chest. The terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me, and I can't stop shaking. What about anger? This is one that probably did not make its way onto a magnet on your fridge. This is from Psalms 55.15. Let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive. That should not be in the Bible. Why is that in there? And then confusion and despair. This one comes from the darkest of all of the Psalms, Psalms 88. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then the last line of the psalm, darkness is my closest friend. I was thinking this morning, this is probably the inspiration for that Simon and Garfunkel song that I'm not going to sing the first line, but it's really tempting to. But you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then, of course, grief. Uh, Psalm 6, 6 through 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And if you're like me, you read these verses and you think to yourself, am I allowed to pray like that? Is that acceptable to pray? That doesn't seem very reverent or very proper. And I believe the answer is yes. We are actually encouraged to pray like this. I would submit to you that there is no emotion that you can feel that is not acceptable to express to God in prayer. There is no emotion that you can feel that is inappropriate to express to God in prayer. To be clear, that does not mean that everything you feel is true, right? Because the psalmist in this prayer says, I feel like God has abandoned me. That's not true. And I think he knows it's not true, but it is how he feels. And the best thing to do with that very real feeling is to take it to God in prayer. And the same thing is true with anger. Yes, as Christians, we are called to love our enemies, but we don't always feel that love. Sometimes what we feel towards our enemies is anger for how they have wronged us. And the best possible thing to do with that anger is to take it to the Lord in prayer. There is nothing that you or I gain from trying to hide it from God. He knows anyway. And so I would uh, just encourage you, and myself included, to come to God as we really are. And if that's angry, come angry. If it's sad, come sad. If it's confused, come to him with your questions. That's what he wants. Psalms 34, 18 promises us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Second is the belief that God does not care about my pain. Uh, this is probably one that most of us would not say out loud. Maybe we wouldn't even admit it to ourselves, but it is a feeling that can creep in. After all, God is so big. He's so vast. Scripture talks about him uh, sustaining the world through the power of his word. Isaiah 40 talks about him holding oceans in the palm of his hand. 
Solomon says in 1 Kings that even the heavens cannot contain him. And it's so tempting to think of a God like that and think, you know what, does he really care that I feel lonely right now? Does he really care that I lost my job? Does he really care that I received a bad diagnosis? This is actually a very prevalent belief in my generation that God, while he exists, is distant from our lives, uninterested, aloof, detached. However, that is not the picture we get in the Bible. Um, scripture makes it very clear. Psalms 56, 8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Now, this is obviously a metaphor, right? We're not meant to picture God actually recording down every time Abigail cries or keeping my tears in his bottle, but it is communicating something true. And what it is communicating is that he cares and he notices. And that's something really profound that I think we need to let sink in, that the God of the universe also takes notice when we go through pain. We also know from scripture that God doesn't just care that you are sad, but he also grieves over the brokenness of our world. He also grieves about the pain and sin and death in our world. And that's the story of the Bible, right? Is God redeeming and healing and restoring our broken world? So that at one point we will get to Revelation 21, 4, where it says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I love this quote from Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament theologian. He says, laments are refusals to settle for the way things are. They are acts of relentless hope that believes no situation falls outside Yahweh's capacity for transformation. No situation falls outside of Yahweh's responsibility. Third is the belief that my prayer must end in praise. I don't know if you guys have ever had this feeling when you're praying that if I come to God with my emotions, by the end of this prayer, I need to have kind of get it turned around. I need to get my act together and I need to be joyful. And by the end of this prayer, I better be praising God. Otherwise, I've kind of failed in this endeavor. I have had that thought. And I will say that many, many laments do end in praise. They do end, many of them in declarations of trust. We're gonna see that next week. But not all of them. They do not need to end in this way. And I, that's one of the reasons I do love Psalms 42, is that it doesn't end in resolution. The best the author can do at the end of Psalm 42 is say, I hope one day to be able to praise God. I can't do it right now. I'm not at a place where I can praise God, but I know one day I will, and I hope for that day. But that's all I got. And then the Psalm ends. And that's okay too. And so I just wanna kinda give us all permission to pray to God without resolution. And that's totally an, an okay thing to do. Once more uh, from Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, they write um, what I think is a really beautiful uh, thought here. They say, don't assume that resolving your turbulent emotions is the key to meeting God. 
It is actually within the inner mayhem of life that a stage is built for the intrusive story of his life and hope. The absence of tumult more than its presence is an enemy of the soul. God meets you in your weakness, not in your strength. He comforts those who mourn, not those who live above desperation. He reveals himself more often in darkness than in the happy moments of life. Fourth and finally um, is the belief that God does not understand what I am going through. And I think for all of us, we can possibly agree that one of the best feelings is when you're walking through something hard, sharing it with someone who totally understands, who can hear you speak and go, oh yeah, I get it. I have walked that road, I have been there, I can empathize, I can sympathize because I know. It's such a good feeling. And sometimes when we think about praying to God in the midst of a hard situation, God can seem so distant that even though he cares, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around him actually being able to understand what we're going through. And in answer to that, we have to go to the book of Hebrews. In this book, the author is addressing, among other things, an issue that the church had with the humanity of Jesus. This is something that we don't think about very often. Um, we, a lot of us, we don't really have a problem with the humanity of Jesus. We grow up hearing it, right? God is, uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. But for the early church, the humanity of Jesus um, was difficult to swallow. Um, and for some, it was tempting to actually be ashamed of the fact that God became human. And the reason for that is because to be human means to be weak. To be human means to be vulnerable. It means to get tired, it means to get sick, and ultimately it means to die, which Jesus did. And what the author of Hebrews says in response to this is that actually, not only is the humanity of Jesus not something to be ashamed of, but it is something to be celebrated because it means that we have a God who understands the human plight, understands the human situation, who can empathize with our struggle because he has struggled with us. Hebrews 4.15, the author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus experienced rejection by his own family. He experienced exhaustion, physical pain, weakness, betrayal and a brutal death. He understands human pain, and this is why the author says just in the very next verse, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to him confidently knowing he understands. He is one of us. We're going to transition now into a time of worship. Um, and as Andrew comes up and begins to lead us, um, I would love for you guys, we're going to do a, a little bit of a time of response, and this is something that we've been doing throughout this series. Um, and I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to turn to one person next to you, maybe two people. And if you are willing uh, to share maybe a barrier that you feel keeps you from praying this kind of open and honest prayer with the Lord. Maybe it's one of the four that we talked about. Maybe it's something totally different. 
But if you feel like there are things that maybe are preventing you from approaching God in this kind of open way, uh, if you would be willing to share that, and then if you would pray over one another. I also want to say if you are currently this morning going through something really heavy uh, and you feel comfortable sharing that with either someone in your group or with the prayer team, we would love to stand with you and pray with you, not just through the good times, but also the hard times as well. So I want to offer that to you guys. All right. Um, yeah, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are not a God who is distant. You are not a God who is uninterested in our lives and the suffering that we go through. Lord, and I pray for myself and for each one of us in this room that we would come to view you as a God who wants us to come as we are. That even this week, that we would really put into practice these kinds of prayers, that we would begin to pray to you like we would talk to a clo our closest friend, that we would share with you what's on our heart and the emotions that we're feeling because we know you care and we know that you understand and we know that you are grieving with us. Lord, I pray that as uh, we worship, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that you would bring comfort to those who are experiencing grief. Pray these things in your name. Amen.